0: Hi and welcome to another episode of The Lawdown. Um, It's back to school and hopefully back to work for some of us. Um, Those of you that are still enjoying your holidays, well, long may it continue. (laughs) So on this episode, I am joined by uh, Beth Hale um, and Emma Bartlett. And I should introduce myself. My name is Wani Sander. I'm a senior associate at CM Murray. Um, we have got a couple of stories to talk about today as usual the first one is in relation to the mass redundancy um, at Wilco's um, Wilkinsons um, who are closing a lot of their stores and um, the impact that that's going to be having on their uh, employees Um, another story about the US Open um, and the men's tennis game and discussions around it being too hot for them to play and changes that they might make to the game. Um, We are recording this on, I think, one of the hottest days of the year so far um, and we understand there's more to come. Um, The third story is about um, an employee Uh, at the probation office who won a payout for some uh, racist uh, chants that he was subjected to. And last but not least, we have got an interesting story um, based on a work study um, and how important it is, how important work is to people um, in different countries around the world. Um, so, to kick us off, Emma, do you want to get us started on this Wilco story? I'll just say before you start as well, I actually love Wilco's. Um, I've quite a few things from there, so it's I'm sad that they're going.
1: I, I think it is sad. It's always sad, isn't it, when a, a well-known high street brand is at risk of disappearing from our high streets. I, I remember Woolworth's disappearing, and that was one of my most loved shops.
0: That's devastating. They had
2: some great pick-and-mix sweets. Was that that say, was my memory. Mix, but I'm sure they sold other good stuff too. To, was why I used to buy my music in my youth. So. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, but Wilco's fits in the same category and is one of the favourite stores of my um, mother-in-law as well, so you're not on your own there, you? Um The uh, The headlines this week, and obviously it's been in the papers for a little while about um, Wilco being in difficulty and um, going into administration, and the headline at the time of recording is that, that more than 1,300 jobs are going to go, Um, uh, as 52 Wilco stores are shut down and um, I'm not sure whether those ones have been announced yet and uh, so it puts the employees in a very um, worrying for themselves situation and the news is also saying that despite stores will close today that the employees will have to continue working for a couple of days which I guess is a little bit confusing so I was thinking about this from the legal perspective because it throws up a number of issues one being so what's happening to the employees now that the company has gone into administration What happens when the administrator is keeping the jobs going, um, uh, keeping the business going as a going concern in order to put it into the best possible situation for it, it to either be sold or broken up? Um, the administrator adopts the contracts and therefore the wages of the employees who are working during that period where the administrator has adopted the contract, which incidentally can't be more than 14 days the um, employees will get paid and their their wages during that period are um, top of the the list of what comes out of um, the assets that the administrator is looking at. But that said, at the point that um, they are made redundant and notice is given, liability for redundancy and notice pay and any unpaid back wages uh, falls on the company and administration. So the employer and administration and really unfortunately those payments fall down the ladder in terms of um, what's most um, important to be paid you know above uh, the tax man who will always um, want to be paid first so that's a difficulty and those employees if there isn't enough money left in the pot of um, Wilco in administration will um, need to go to the National Insurance Fund where there will be capped liability in respect of uh, the amount of wages unpaid wages that can be claimed and the amount of notice pay and the amount of statutory redundancy pay that can be can be claimed the other thing i was thinking about here was um the fact that uh what's happened with the collective consultation here where there's 1300 jobs going ordinarily that would trigger collective consultation procedures where um you have to you know 1300 jobs that's a 45 day potentially, um, collective consultation period before the first redundancy can take place. But it's the same thing with the the Woolworth stores, is that um, those collective consultation obligations will only kick in if there's 20 or more employees in that branch uh, that's closing. Um, And with a lot of the Woolworth stores, and we've seen it with other um, big household names that have had to close down in recent years, that they've avoided the collective consultation obligations because they only kick in where there's 20 or more at one um, location and uh, it may well be that per Wilco store there may be less than 20 and therefore the collective consultation obligations didn't apply. The uh, Where there are more than 20 then obviously there's an additional claim that the individuals may have in respect of um, possibly an unfair dismissal or discrimination or um, but failure to consult and comply with the collective consultation obligations. There's huge difficulties there in bringing these claims against an employer and administration. Number one, because whilst a company in administration, um, there's a moratorium on claims that can be brought. Um, so you have to wait for that or request that that is lifted so you can pursue. But then um, you have to then decide whether or not it's worth pursuing it. Because is there any money going to, so even if you succeed in your claim, is there any money at the end? Um, And so that can be really difficult. But, um, yeah, I really do feel for um, employees who are employed in, you know, big household brands that then go into administration and it it presents them in real difficulty. But um, I hope that was a a quick whistle stop through um, the sort of legal aspects that I've been thinking about.
0: Yeah, that was an excellent explanation. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's a sad situation, I think, for the employees, particularly, as you say, where otherwise, if you um, were made redundant um, in a situation where the company wasn't in administration and and procedures weren't followed, at least you would have the potential option of going against the employer. But whereas you say, um, there might be uh, a moratorium on that, um it does mean that your options are slightly limited um so yeah I do feel for them um Beth I don't know if you've got any comments on this story
2: thanks Emma that's a it's that's a really useful refresher on all of those points and um, particularly around the establishment point on on you know the number of people a number of employees in each store um but I think it it's um it, it we we've, we've had to look sadly at quite a few of these kinds of mass redundancy situations over the last few years um and one that springs to mind is the pno redundancies which happened a couple of years ago now i think and um uh that was interesting because it wasn't i mean it was very different because they weren't going into administration it wasn't a, it wasn't a crisis situation for them it was purely a money saving exercise and they nonetheless did not comply with their um with their collective consultation obligations so it's really just it's, it's all of this I think is throws into the kind of the spotlight the effectiveness and and how you know and, and the, the effectiveness of the obligations and, and whether they are ever followed properly which I think they normally are actually to to be fair most employers would follow them and I think I have no evidence to suggest that Wilco are not following what they should have done or the administrators but I think it's just interesting isn't it to think about how it um how it plays out in practice. That we yeah. advance on the legal aspects, but actually how people do it in, in sort of practice on the floor is quite, you know, on the on the ground is quite different.
0: Yeah. Particularly as you say, I think when things are in crisis and, and things might be happening very quickly, decisions being made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on to our next story. Uh this heat that we're having, Beth, is having an impact. <laughs> do you want to talk a bit more about that? And yeah. tennis
2: So um, yeah, so we are. As you say, we're recording this on the seventh of September, which is um the hottest day in the u k this year I think so far um it's a funny time to have the hottest day of the year. It wouldn't normally happen in September, but um it is unusually hot and uh I just spotted that um the the u s open is obviously happening the u s tennis open is happening in New York as we speak um and one of the players Daniel medvedev um was complaining about the heat yesterday on wednesday um and said that, and he tweeted that someone was gonna die on court. I mean it sounds quite dramatic, but he was just like, it's too much to ask people to expect people to play tennis uh five sets of tennis, which is what the men's competitive in the the, the um big tournaments is five sets. Um and he was just saying it's too hot and that's unreasonable and maybe we should reduce the men's game where there is serious heat to three sets instead of five. Um, I think it's quite unlikely to happen, but it just made me think about every time there is a heat wave, um, you get people going, How hot is too hot to work? When when can I just go? I'm not working anymore, it's too hot. When when is it reasonable to say actually my office is too hot or my um, you know, my home office is too hot or when can i sort of you know down tools because of that um and i should say as well that's particularly stark because both me and emma are working at home where we don't today we don't have any air conditioning and we're looking at wanu on the zoom in the beautifully air-conditioned office and feeling quite jealous so um (laughs) (laughs) i am actually cold (laughs) that's how air-conditioned i am (laughs) um but I think it, it's it's interesting isn't it because I think everyone would lots of people assume and people often ask me and people often assume that there is a kind of maximum temperature which a workplace can be and, and you know above which you can sort of go home um and actually there isn't and and if you think about it in any sort of uh, any length it's sort of obvious that there wouldn't be because um different workplaces have different temperatures right you Not everybody works in an air conditioned office. Some people will work in a kitchen where it's really hot or a factory where it's always really hot and they will. So the the government has never tried to sort of enforce a a maximum temperature um, for working, but that there is an obligation to provide a safe place of work. Um, And so if your workplace is sort of unsafely hot, that's not grammatically correct, but is so hot as to make it unsafe. then you can refuse to work. But I think that that is, um, you know, the temperature the Temperature must be at a comfortable level, whatever that means, and they must be providing clean and fresh air. So if you are in a very hot environment, you should be, um, you know, there should be uh, air conditioning, there should be, you know, vet, proper ventilation, all those kinds of things. Um, and I think uh, there there is also, interestingly, no minimum working temperature. So, um, there is guidance which suggests that a minimum of 16 degrees or 13 degrees C um, if employees are doing physical work but uh, again there's no sort of if it it gets below a certain temperature I can leave Um, it's all just very dependent on the kind of work that people are doing and the kind of workplace in which they're employed.
1: Yeah I I remember being at school and um, you know in the winter when it's snowing and you think, oh, the boiler's breaking because it's really cold and sort of waiting for the temperature to, to hit a certain thing. And I think I think it's different in schools, maybe. I don't know. But um yeah, so, uh, only where there's children, maybe not.
2: I think that I think it's different in schools.
1: But certainly in the workplace it's um yeah, it's the employer having to comply with its health and safety obligations. And um, I, I just think about lifeguards and their rotation. Um, so they don't sit there sweating for seven hours at a poolside, <laughs> although that might be to do with their um, attendance, uh, uh, ability to attend to what they're supposed to be doing, and not dropping off in the heat.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and the, that's you know I think that yeah, it is really important. As now, I also think about hospitals are often old hospital buildings are often very very hot. Um, And the damage that that, you know, the the risks involved in that. And I've seen new, newer hospital buildings are better built to be properly ventilated. But um, yeah, I remember being in hospital, having had a baby, being in the midsummer, being insanely hot. And just thinking this can't, this can't be, this can't be okay for anyone, including the doctors and nurses. Um, But yeah, I just, it's it's an interesting point and actually something that people often ask me. People often say, when am I allowed to just go, it's too hot. I'm not working anymore. (laughs) That'd be nice. <laughs> not my not my colleagues i should say no, no. <laughs> um yeah well i'm sure there'll be a temperature that'll get to
0: where every workplace it'll be too hot for every workplace but i don't think we quite got there yet um i did think about this story just the idea of having uh, the set drop from 5 to 3 that it might be um a roundabout way of equalizing the men and women's game um so if the heat could do it <laughs> that would be good yeah um and so the first story i'm going to talk about is um quite shocking um a employee working for the probation service in reading who quit his job after he was subjected to monkey chants and other racist abuse at work he won his uh, one, a, fa- a financial settlement, that's how it was described. But actually, um, as I read the story, it seems that a um, settlement was reached. So it's it's not that the claim went to the full, full hearing. Um, so apparently what happened was he was subjected to these chants whilst he was speaking to colleagues. Nothing was done when he complained to managers um, back in 2019. Um, he felt that the matter was swept under the carpet Um, by his managers when he lodged grievance and the person who was the perpetrator returned to work in the same office, which led him to to feel um, as if he he was let down and they didn't deal with it appropriately. Um, So interestingly, in this case, uh, the Equality and Human Rights Commissioner um, supported his case. Um and they confirmed that the probation service agreed a payout unspecified payout after a preliminary hearing so as I say, it didn't go all the way um so the key points um in this case that um stood out to me um was around the sorts of claims that I think he would have brought um and the responsibility on an employer to uh, take action when something like this happens um so, First off, I mean, you know, subjecting someone to, to, to monkey chants is clearly racial harassment. Um, it's unwanted conduct, um, and it relates to a protected characteristic, which is race, and no doubt um, it would have had the effect of violating his dignity, which is one of the sort of um, tests, or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment. Um, so he would have um, possibly quite easily um met met that that test for harassment under our uh, Equality Act. Um, the employer's um liability, and I should actually also say the individual if that individual was an employee, um, likely would have had liability um, personally for harassment um, if a claim was brought against them. Um, but the employer would also potentially have vicarious liability for the act of another employee. Um, that harasses somebody else uh, in that way in the workplace. Um, usually, it's you know sort of automatic, but there are defences uh, for that employers could have. So if they take reasonable steps to prevent the harassment, for example, providing effective training, um, and I think part of part of the context of this would have been what the employer did uh, following up as well. I think often. You know, if you have, even if you have a policy, if you're not, if you're not implementing it, if you're not taking action when somebody raises a complaint and says this has happened to them, um, and, and you're not, um, effectively dealing with it, then I think you might struggle to to rely on a reasonable steps defence. Um, so here, you you know, you've got the original conduct that that um the perpetrator is potentially responsible for, um, and the failure to address um and vicarious liability of the employer. And I think employers just need to be um, quite vigilant really around making sure that they are following their policies, that they are um, taking appropriate action. Um, and again, if in a case that's quite obviously this, you know, this level of well, this egregious, then um, it's a bit surprising that they they took this all the way and didn't um uh didn't settle it, I guess, earlier or deal with it earlier. Um, and then the other thing that came up for me as I was reading this, um, is the fact that he said that nobody called it out, um, when, when it was happening. Um, and whilst there isn't, I guess, for employees a sort of separate, uh, standalone obligation to call out behavior in, in that way, if you're not the person, uh, perpetrating it, um, I thought it was interesting that within the legal context, we have recently had, uh, introduction of, um that sort of obligation to um sort of call out inappropriate behavior challenge inappropriate behavior in in the workplace um and i'm not going to go into a whole load of detail because i think you can listen to our other podcasts on this if you want to get detail about that um but it is but it is interesting that in within that context if um behavior like this occurred then the fact that somebody was you know standing by um, and didn't actually address it or challenge it could be a issue within itself um a regulatory issue um so yeah i thought i thought that's quite a shocking story um but interesting from a legal angle
2: thanks Wanu. i think that point about bystander intervention is so important isn't it and i think and there is a there's a bill currently going through parliament um and query whether it will actually get get to the statute books but uh, which would impose a positive obligation on employers to um to prevent harassment in the workplace um it's primarily aimed at sexual harassment but uh, which obviously this wasn't but i think um that it is part of a kind of general trend towards actually saying you have to do better than not just being the harasser you you actually have to also prevent it happening take positive steps to prevent this kind of behavior in your workplace create a workplace where this is less likely to happen and that includes or it may include training your employees on how to uh, may include training your employees on how to step in and how because it's not always easy right it's, it's hard to to sort of step in when you see something happening that makes everybody feel uncomfortable mm. uh, but providing training can be a really useful way to do that um and encouraging people to do that and saying actually we and leading from the top doing you know when when so that so that when leaders are seeing this kind of conduct happening they are stepping in and and pulling people up on it and that that sort of feeds down to the rest of the organization um and i think tra- yeah training and also encouraging and letting people know that they won't be penalized for doing so i think is really important
0: yeah i agree um and just as you're saying about the bystander um and and what you can actually do I think I've probably mentioned this before on the on these these podcasts but there are those uh, adverts that you see on the underground don't you about mm-hmm. how how to effectively intervene when you see harassment um sexual harassment on the underground or public transport um and to intervene in the in the safest way I guess uh possible
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, and I think it, you know, it should obviously be acknowledged that it is difficult to do and certainly difficult to do. I think particularly actually in that sort of, you know, the seeing it happen on the tube when you don't know how, whether you're going to be putting yourself actually at at sort of risk. But I think that, yeah, there are lots, there's lots of um, sort of information out there about how, how you might do that safely. What, you know, best ways to do it. um, And, I certainly think in the workplace that I think it should be encouraged and positively sort of positively treated.
1: I think one of the things in the workplace is that it's you don't always have to expect somebody to stand up at the time that something's happening to intervene um but if it's if they don't feel safe to do so or don't feel it is appropriate for them to do so but to um instead speak to the individual who was on the receiving end of the inappropriate behavior and uh, give them some support and direct them to um report the behavior upwards and or for you to say I, I saw what was happening are you going to do it if you don't i will and um have that conversation afterwards if it if it feels inappropriate to do it at the time
0: yeah that's a that's a really good suggestion, Emma um actually I've just um remembered that I got a good uh, tip as to how to deal with potential intervention um it does require actually doing something in the moment but one way to deal with it is to almost put a bit of silence a little uh sort of address the moment by saying something like whoa what did you mean by that and that sort of puts a break in what the person's doing or saying and gives cause for everyone to sort of reflect just briefly in that moment before moving on um, and then it can potentially you know be be addressed later but it could also get the perpetrator to stop what they're doing because they they might they might just be doing something that they don't quite realize is offensive I think in this case it clearly was but um, sometimes people can can say things that they might not realise is offensive, and and sometimes a sort of fairly low level way to, to intervene can just stop them in the moment by saying something like "Whoa, you know, what do you mean by that?" or uh, something along those lines. I think that's a
1: that's a great tip. It's it's less confrontational, isn't it, than just get piling in and saying you can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> More asking open questions. Exactly. Yeah. I,
0: um, and our last uh, story of this lowdown episode, another surprise, actually. <laughs> um, it's a study which apparently found um, that people in the UK are least likely to say that work is important to them. Um, amongst a wild study of other countries, including France, Sweden, the US, Nigeria, Japan and China. So we placed at the bottom Um, in terms of the importance that we place on work. I think we, as we were discussing this earlier, were struggling to to think as to to why the UK has placed um, bottom in that respect. But I I think globally, there is possibly a trend um, around people focusing more on their wider, I guess, life goals and um, priorities um, over, over work, maybe, um, and Emma, you had an, an interesting perspective from a book that you'd read recently.
1: Yeah, I did. I don't know if anybody else has read this. There's um, a book called The Hundred Year Life, um, which talks about how as an ageing population, um, we as individuals uh, expect to work so much longer than our than previous generations um, uh, because we're living longer and we're more active for longer and therefore, rather than um, piling ahead to retire at 60 or 65, people are thinking, actually, I might have to work well into my 70s. I've got I'm on a m- multiple marriages. I've got multiple children that I've got to support. And um, I therefore have to pace myself. So um, people are rather than having one career that lasts the whole of their working life, they're choosing a portfolio career and um, this means that they are having a different work-life balance because they are more measured in their approach to work and so i'm I'm not really surprised by this statistic um i'm not surprised that the uk is at the bottom i am maybe more surprised that um there are other european countries that are above it because I, I think this applies not just to the uk it applies across the whole of europe
0: also i, I won't name the countries i would have expected to see at the bottom but there were some other neighbours of ours that I would have expected to see a bit closer to the bottom than that than us.
2: Yeah, I think that maybe that reflects the fact that that there hasn't been a sort of um, things like working practices in the UK. You know, we work longer hours than lots of other countries, and uh, you know, you talk about working longer and you know for for many more, for more years, Emma. But also we we. Um, have different provisions and partially different provisions in respect of working time. We work longer hours. So maybe that has an impact on people's view of work as well. Um, whereas some other European countries have much stricter rules about the hours that they can work and, and you know, things like starting to introduce things like the right to switch off. Um, siestas. Siestas <laughs> as, as covered on our last edition of the lockdown, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's maybe it just reflects how how we work that then people go this is too much and I'm, it's not a priority for me.
1: I, I also think we can't forget that in the, uh, I think in the middle of the period where these statistics have been taken, we've had the global pandemic and the UK handled it quite differently to other countries, mm. um, where workers carried, you know, there were were obviously a vast um, proportion of our workforce which was furloughed um, or people actually unfortunately lost their jobs but there was a, a vast proportion as well that continued working and um we've gone through such a you know multiple years of economic uncertainty now which um it is is hopefully changing um and appears to be on the up but it, it makes people you know we're working differently Um, We've had all this pressure, so it's not entirely surprising, is it, that people start to prioritise different aspects of their life while
0: um, trying to cope with what's just happened. Yeah, actually, that's, yeah, (laughs) good point, Emma. (laughs) I think a good one for us to uh, end this Law Down podcast on. Um, So thanks very much to Emma and Beth. Um, thanks to you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you would like to listen to any of our past episodes please do go onto our website we've also got plenty of other resources for you there it's www.cm-murray.com so thank you very much and goodbye thanks thanks honey